You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, all, and thanks for joining us on Wealth Tech on Deck. Our podcast is a series of conversations with industry leaders who create strategies, take tech capabilities, and innovative products and platforms around the confluence of digital and human advice, all to improve investor, advisor, and firm financial outcomes. So today, we will talk with Trisha Rothschild. Trisha is a friend and has a storied career. She spent more than 26 years at Morningstar, where in her last role, she was Chief Product Officer and Co-Head of Global Markets. Over the course of her career, Trisha was an executive at Morningstar in charge of the global software, data, index, and investment research businesses, serving individual investors, financial advisors, and asset managers. More recently, she was president of Apex Financial Solutions. Trisha is currently the vice chair of the CFA Institute of Board of Governors. She also serves on the advisory board at the Tiffin Group and on the board of the Financial Fitness Group. So, Trisha, thanks for joining us. Welcome. So happy to have you on Wealth Tech on Deck. Thanks, Jack. So happy to be here. Terrific. So, Trisha, you've done a bunch over uh, the course of your career. For those who may not be familiar with your work, tell our audience about some of the things you've developed that you are particularly proud and passionate about. Okay, cool. Thank you. Much of my career at Morningstar was related to investment research, and I was trained as an analyst got my CFA, built uh, an equity research business there. So very focused on bringing the right and kind of high integrity investment value to users. That could be an advisor, could be an individual. As my career went along there, and I would say more recently, what I'm actually most proud of is the integration of that investment research with financial planning and other aspects of an individual's financial health that goes beyond just say the investment research specifically. And so before I left the firm, we, we created and, and launched a, a product offering called GoalBridge, which was specifically designed to link the financial plan with the investment plan. And honestly, it took me quite a while, probably longer than it should have, to understand that in real life, the financial plan and the investment plan aren't always already linked when you go to see a financial advisor, it's often different pieces of software with different backends. And that idea of creating the goal bridge, which is what we called it in the Morningstar context, was it seemed both obvious and innovative at the same time. Having spent a little bit of time on the particular topic of which you speak, uh, it's really hard. You know, it's, it sounds like, of course, you would have your plan and your investment strategy coordinated, but it's rare that I've ever seen it actually done. So talk a little bit about how you, how you pulled it off. What, not so much about the all the dirty details and, and as with building anything, as you well know, it always takes longer and it's harder than, than expected. But what did you encounter? What did you guys overcome? How did you make it work? Yeah, I think one of the more complex parts is understanding how you map the goals to the actual accounts. I know that this is something, Jack, that you do a lot of work on. And both things exist and are understandable in their separate natures, right? Like as a person, as an investor, as a family, you have multiple accounts and they are created for all good reason. And then similarly, you have lots of goals and those are also all very valid, but the meshing of the goals and the accounts and how you get the right investment outcome from that integration 
is just hard, especially hard to do at scale. So, and in automated way, which is clearly, you know, the tech part of fintech is to do all of the good work that a a human advisor could do, but to deliver it more efficiently with less risk, higher quality, and less cost and to do it at scale. And that's where I think the complexity really comes in. You raise an interesting point. Obviously, at Layfield, we've spent a whole lot of time on this topic. I have to say, I still am surprised. Clearly, the industry is moving toward the embrace of what you just described. In other words, how do you get your plan implemented? And then, frankly, because we work with a lot of firms, it's hard. Data is all over the place and assumptions are all over the place and so on. But talk about it from your perspective. I mean, I could go on about it, but better to hear hear from you. Why is it so hard? What makes it so difficult? Since it seems everyone's working on what you just described and everyone is, frankly, struggling with it, at least the the folks we talked to, we talked to a lot of people. Well, there are many reasons it can be hard. <laughs> so <laughs> let me count the ways. Yes, How could yes. it be hard? I mean, one is, as you said, the data, the sources of the data are often, you know, it's not consistent in the first place. Secondly, a lot of the firms um, in the industry have grown through integration or acquisition at some point or another. Acquisition, perhaps, without integration. Right, right. And so... Oh, you mean you have to integrate too? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was a little Freudian slip when I said integration first. It's actually, it's the acquisition that happens, and then you have to do the integration, and then you have to do the maintenance. And actually, I would add something to that if I could. Well, we're finding when we're making this distinction, in fact, we had Aaron Klein on here not too long ago, and when we were talking about this, it's a coordinated integration because when you take planning and you take investments and you take multiple account types, account registrations, and you take different product types, say annuity or what have you, or SMA, UMA, fund, ETF, whatever, that's where all that complexity occurs, right? Because it has to be not only, we ultimately you're trying to implement, but you have to coordinate all of those different factors because there's all different parameters around yeah. those different products and so on. But maybe you should talk about that rather than me wax poetic on it. Uh, yeah, no, 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 that's true. And and then there's, of course, the aspect of scale. And so if you have, you know, say, a good, you know, wealth forecasting engine or some sort of tool that is going through multiple scenarios, like doing that at scale and understanding where you're at in a market cycle. So is it dynamic? Like, are you integrating current market valuations? I mean, that's obviously the, the holy grail yeah. when you're running that sort of put for somebody. But taking all that complexity for, like I said, an individual person or family and running it at scale, it just, it starts to get slow. And so then the experience isn't good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's another problem. So those are just a few of the possible problems. Yes. Yes. Well, I'll, uh, I'll lay off. I think we've established it's hard. (laughs) As we we say in Boston, it's wicked hard. Anyway, talk a little bit about, because you're involved with the Tiffin Group, which really does some interesting work. You're involved with some other folks, certainly on the CFA front. And some other groups, and got a front row seat. What's going on? What are you seeing? What are you excited about? What are you interested in? What's happening out there that will address some of the things we just talked about, and probably a whole lot more. Sure. So I consider myself to be a pretty growth-oriented person. I'm not change averse. I mean, you would think I spent my whole career at one firm. It would indicate that I was change averse, but <laughs> there, there was some change there while you were there, right? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say there's some irony there, but no, actually, the firm was growing. Uh, so quickly, which was, a, it was just a lovely place to be over, you know, two decades plus because there was so much change and opportunity. But my point is, I consider myself to be fairly growth oriented, but I'm actually at the moment really thinking a lot about risk. And I, I can tell you it's, it's somewhat of it is personal. So I took some risk in leaving 
Morningstar after 26 years. And on a personal note, I'm, I'm doing a lot of reflecting on how I like to spend my time and kind of getting to know myself again. But from a financial services perspective, I'm thinking a lot about risk as well. I'm the chair of the risk committee at the CFA Institute on the board there. And I also think in the context of current market valuations and investor expectations and the integration of new asset types into people's portfolios and a whole new generation of investors coming up, wealth transfer and all those things everybody you know knows so much about. I just think that we as an industry need to be really thoughtful about risk. So that's an interest to me. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that. What do we do about it? I'll give you my quick wrap and then love to have your thoughts on it. If you're going to improve outcome, and that's what this is all about. Of course, we've had this seemingly never-ending bull market. I know there have been some backs and forths and so on, but you know, over the course of your career and mine has been pretty much heading north, you know, the vast majority of the time. So risk is sort of a, an issue that's sort of set aside. But if you're going to improve outcome and can't rely on the market forever, and now we got inflation rearing its ugly head, we got taxes potentially going up, and taxes are the biggest impact, as we know, uh, on a portfolio uh, in terms of outcome. So if you're going to improve outcome, the three levers are cost, risk, and tax. If you're going to go beyond the markets, if you're not going to rely on the markets per se, and you got to throw inflation in there because if inflation kicks in, and certainly if it becomes long-term, it's going to affect the retirement income of so many baby boomers now retiring, it's going to impact their income. So there's lots of different forces at work that are kind of coming together. And interestingly, there's lots of good work going on around the industry, and I know you, you paid close attention to that. So talk specifically in terms of your concern around risk and that, this whole thing about how it comes together, because that seems to be where the retail investing world is headed. How do we bring it all together to improve outcome sustainably over time? Yeah, I think it's somewhat definitional. So what is risk? And for whom is it a risk? And how material is the risk? So there's investment risk, which is probably kind of what you were just talking about, but there's also sure, behavioral sure. risk or, you know, risk of my own, you know, behavior. There's the risk of not investing or inaction. And there's like correlation risk, the risk of not meeting goals. I think a lot of it comes down to education. That maybe sounds rather simple, but I'm not sure if the risk is really always discussed in a super meaningful way. And it also is the kind of thing that people think they're supposed to avoid, and that's clearly not possible. Yep. So yep. so how is it best managed? And do you know what risks you're taking? Yep. And is that clear? And have the right expectations been set? Let's say, especially if you're working with an advisor, like how are those things even discussed? So I'm all for investor education. Advisor education is not far behind. But I'm not sure that's going to solve it. It seems personally, and I'm a bit biased for sure, I think technology is where that's going to get solved just because I just see stuff being developed or their example, Orion is developing um, behavioral finance in the midst of their tools so that it's giving mm -hmm. you caution in you know real time as you're about to make a dumb mistake. And then calculating the, the consequence of taking an action that will cost, you know, in terms of tax dollars and risk dollars potentially and so on, that they're actually embedding it. So I, I'm, I'm a little bit more prone toward the fintech solving this or at least helping in solving it because it seems gargantuan to try to educate everybody that in a way that they, I'm not sure they'll ever be, will ever succeed there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And you're right. And they're not mutually exclusive paths. Sure. Um, I think there is enough advancement at this point in terms of 
how you know AI can be applied to understand past behavior and then project what you know is likely in the next step and how that could provide a better kind of like foreshadowing or pathway that would help people maybe alleviate or again, mitigate some of those risks. I think the part that's definitional though, is understanding in the first place. So what risks are appropriate and what are not, and just understanding like that, the word even more clearly. Again, you're the vice chair of the CFA Institute Board of Governors and with a specific focus on risk. And you're involved with the Tiffin Group, which I'm, I'm quite sure I don't know all that they do, but I'm quite sure risk is on the, on the on the menu of things they look at. And certainly Financial Fitness Group, the same. So what are you doing about it? What are they doing about it? What should we be doing about it? Sure. So, well, Financial Fitness Group is kind of the easiest in one sense because it's all about financial education. And I mean, one of the more interesting things that happens there is the um, Ho-Chunk Nation, the Indian tribe out of Wisconsin, ensures that all of the kids have to go through this financial fitness program before they turn of age to get their government grant. And so kind of having that sort of enforcement, if you will, to just learn some basic literacy at a young age, I think is pretty cool. I mean, it's not taught in very many schools. I think, you know, there's also some gamification that comes from those tools, which is like your, you know, your financial fitness score. So you can do your before and after. I think there's a lot we can learn in our industry from other apps and other like nudging, like a fitness app or whatever that kind of helps you have a Peloton. Like, you know, it's interesting and fun to kind of see how there's a sense of community that develops from that. And so I think there's a lot we can learn as an industry and the CFA Institute board, there's an emphasis on a a different type of risk, which we haven't discussed yet, which is super important to our industry, which is cyber risk Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, data privacy. So there's just so much to learn and to be vigilant about in that space. And I think that in the financial advisor community in particular, there has been some some good work that's being done and certainly a lot of awareness. I was just at the market council summit and there was some, you know, really important conversations from the technology panel Mm -hmm. around how, you know, large RIAs who maybe don't have the backing of a large bank infrastructure, but, but still need to be very aware of the importance of privacy for their clients' data and, and what they can do about that. So that's another aspect of risk. It would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the importance of that. I'm intrigued. I'm not sure to what degree you can share. I'm intrigued with the Tiffin Group, which I've been hearing about and was at the Tiburon Conference and had a chance to hear, I think it's the chairman who spoke. I'm not recalling his Vinay. name. Vinay Nair, yeah. Dr. Nair. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. Tell me about that group. I pay attention to a lot of stuff and I, that one I missed. And I, after hearing Vinay, I was like, wow, I should be paying closer attention. So You should be. So <laughs> I have been paying attention for you, Jack. Good, good. I will share with you. And then actually, I think what the Tiffin Group has captured as a need in their strategy, which I was attracted to. And Tricia, if I may, yeah. why don't you just describe what they do? We're talking like we, you and I know, and I only know a little, you know, a lot more, of course, but describe the group, what they do, and then into their strategy as well. Yeah, I, I will. So I guess at the core of the strategy is this focus on hyper-personalization and taking a variety of assets or what you might even call point solutions, many of which the Tiffin Group has built from scratch. So for example, the one 
that is easy for everybody to relate to who's listening to this because you can go online and do a search is called Magnify. It's a natural language search investment discovery and research tool. And it's personalized to the extent that you just put in whatever is on your mind that you're looking for in terms of a criteria and let's say low cost access to clean water and you'll get a result. So you don't have to have any particular investment knowledge, although obviously it has you know a, a, both a self-directed arm and an advisor focused arm that allow advisors to also construct portfolios in a, in a pretty intuitive manner. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's an example of what was built. But there's also been a couple of acquisitions in the portfolio. So Totem uh, was an acquisition that's now part of the Tiffin suite. So do they, do they as a, act as like a VC private equity investor? What's the role of Tiffin? Is it just as an investor? What do they provide beyond that? So I wouldn't necessarily say they would function as just an investor, because the strategy is to take these assets and bring them to market to add value along the way so that there's a, you know, a development team, obviously, that's building some things fresh and other things are being integrated, all with that goal of improving the investment outcome through hyper-personalization and and really balancing the fin and the tech. So how do we think about the financial part of the equation along with the tech? And because it's a very fast development kind of cycle, it's pretty impressive what they've been able to bring to market Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a pretty short order of time. And thinking about both the asset management side of the equation and the advisor side of the equation, which is another part of the puzzle that I think is very important. I feel like there is a fair amount of work being done on how to make the advisor's desktop better, for lack of a better word. But what is the connectivity and the role of the asset manager? And isn't there a way, and I would say there is, and I think that the Tiffin Group's mission would validate this, there is a way to make that matching process between the investment offering and the investor or the advisor mm-hmm, mm-hmm, simpler. Mm-hmm. And Magnify is a great example of that. So it's, you know, it's a way to use natural language search to bring that, to make that process kind of demystify it a little bit. Mm -hmm. They're also doing some things with thematic investment baskets. So uh, Morningstar has some strategies. JP Morgan has some strategies. So as an individual investor, you can ask, you can access a stock basket and then execute that trade. Actually, that's done through the Apex Custody and Clearing platform. So it offers a low cost way to access a a small set of, you know, Mm -hmm. thematic Mm -hmm. investments that are chosen by a professional investment team. So that's another way to kind of simplify the access between the investment IP and the end user. And wasn't, uh, speaking of IP, wasn't 55 IP part of the different group? It was. That was acquired by JP Morgan. So that was probably the most well-known in in our industry anyway, the most mature asset. And so the strategy then is, you know, as you can see, these properties can coexist and link together. There's a really interesting donor advised fund offering called Louise that is in market and is available for, for to look at to help advisors with the growing need for better access to help their clients have, have easier access to their philanthropic giving goals. So there's a really interesting like, kind of family of mm-hmm. offerings yep. that sit under the Tiffin umbrella. It's worth spending a little bit of time, I would say. Yeah, I was fascinated to listen to Vinay and also as a company like Lifefield, quite fascinated on the wonderful success 55IP enjoyed. 
<laughs> so yeah. that did catch our attention. Talk a little bit, if you would, we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I'd love to hear, where do you see the world going? What's on the horizon? What what excites you? What interests you? What needs to get fixed? I know you've talked about risk, but what do we do about it? Where do we take it? What do we do as an industry? And certainly as a someone who's been a leader for many decades at this point, where do you see it all going? Yeah, I think the words that come to mind are personalization, which we just talked about. So mm-hmm. even putting aside the how, there is a clear opportunity. There's a need for people to have like the precision that each individual family situation kind of requires and and deserves. Mm -hmm. And so I think the industry is moving toward increased level of personalization and doing it. Obviously, the goal is to do it at scale and simplification. There's, in my opinion, every time you think that there's going to be some getting close to being simplified, then something comes along that increases the complexity again. And so I think that that's just an ongoing challenge for the industry. By the way, if I may interject, I don't think there's anyone better at at simplifying the complex than Morningstar. Basically, that's if I were to say your brand, you make the complex simple. And you you were clearly one of the leaders at Morningstar when that all happened. So you know of what you speak. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it helps if you start with the assumption that it should be simple. Yes. And it also <laughs> it also helps if there are not incentives in place that, you know, give you reason to try to obscure. Yes. So I think those are the two first foundational principles that are required. Yep. But I guess the main thing I would say, I was thinking about this a little bit, Jack, it, there's a little bit of a shift in terms of what and where is the value that the industry delivers. And I find that to be a really interesting question. So tell me more. I'm fascinated by the thought. So tell me what you've cooked up. Yeah. So is there value in the asset management firm's IP? And, you know, it seems almost common these days that people say, well, the investment part of the equation is commoditized. And I hear that. I understand why people say that. Maybe it's more commoditized than it used to be. But you can't tell me that there's no value in an asset manager's IP or that there's no value in having you know high-quality professional management. That doesn't mean that every asset manager is providing that. But there is value there. But I think that's yep. how much is one question. Is there value in the software experience? What is the value of the software experience? How does one differentiate and add true innovation? A lot of, you know, the the workflows tend to, at some point, start to kind of look the same. And is there value in personalized service? Like, what is the value of the human touch? Clearly, there's value there, too. And I think, you know, kind of the, you know, the threat of the robo-advisor, and I say that in quotes, showed that it's really not a threat and that there is need for, and the pandemic has showed us this too, there's need for, there's value in human contact. So so how in the future does that value get parsed out? I think that is where the interesting kind of conversation comes. I think you can over-rotate one way or the other, but ultimately all three of those aspects have value. One firm that we know well uh, that comes to mind that I think is an example of what you're describing is uh, Franklin Templeton. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much close you follow Jenny Johnson. I am a big fan of Jenny Johnson. Yes, I join you in that. And she spoke at Tiburon and we had a chance to chat with her a bit. She is, boy, is she sharp and she gets it. So it's it's no longer about just managing money better, which certainly they've given up on that by any means, but all the investment in tech really and how yes. that's getting integrated is really quite fascinating. I think they're among all the asset managers, I follow them closely. All due respect to our friends at BlackRock, they talk a good game. I haven't seen much 
other than the talk. Jenny's doing it. She's in, making the investments, I think, that will matter. We'll see. It's a race. And uh, BlackRock is right up with Franklin Templeton. I think there's a few others that will be coming up from behind. Uh, my friend Riley Etheridge is at American Funds and doing, yeah. doing some interesting work along those lines. So it, it's coming. Uh, I think it's happening, but it's as you will. It's where we started is this is hard work. But your thoughts on the above? So that is an interesting, it's almost like a back to the future play because the asset managers, I mean, remember, like they used to have all of the distribution embedded in the asset manager and we separated all that in our industry. And now you can see the need and I get it. Like I think the asset managers need to have a better understanding of the end user. Like they became a little distanced from their customer. And so this investment in technology allows them to more effectively serve the user. And I don't, I I think that's a good thing, but I also, I just, I think it needs to be done in an open architecture kind of way so that we move ultimately forward and don't repeat some of the problems that came mm-hmm. around the first time mm-hmm. when everything was vertically integrated and mm-hmm. it was all about like a product push. Yep. I will say, I think Franklin Templeton in particular has set up a really important kind of framework for that. There's a, a service called Tango that they launched and I was part of that in my work at Apex with the Franklin Templeton products, but it was open architecture. So there could be other offerings if yep. desired. Yep. And yep. this it's called Bamboo. It was a, a robo advice platform that was also then integrated into the Apex custody and clearing platform and the whole suite, the end to end workflow is called Tango. And it's, you know, 15 basis points, more or less, it takes five minutes, more or less, it has a dynamically adjusted, like goal matching engine to put you into the right portfolio. So it's, you know, it's a goal based approach. And it was fast, it was simple, it was inexpensive. It is fast, it is simple, it is inexpensive. You mean what customers want, advisors want? simple and inexpensive. (laughs) Totally, right? So I just thought that was a really kind of a a good step forward. That's great. That's great. Well, this has been a great conversation as we do at this point in our discussion. I'd love to hear three key takeaways that uh, you'd like to share with our audience. Sure. So my favorite product management phrase, and it's funny because it kind of came up in this conversation a little bit, is love the problem more than the product. And Great. it's a product management phrase from any industry, but it's particularly relevant in our industry. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's one. Number two is balancing the fin and the tech. So if you're, you know, if it's all fin and no tech, we have to move beyond that. Yes. And if it's all tech and no fin, which is sometimes a risk, we're not going to get the right outcome. Yeah, so I yeah. think, and that's something that I think that as an example, the Tiffin Group is doing well. Third takeaway is having, at this moment in particular in the industry, having really strong peripheral vision. So what is happening on the sides, you might say, like embedded finance? So is Walmart going to launch direct-to-consumer investing platform, right? I mean, they hired those folks from Goldman who launched Marcus. I mean, you know, there's clear signs that there is more interest in consumer and retail brands thinking about investing. And understanding kind of the rise of the younger generation, I think that that's part of the peripheral vision that we need to have in our industry that uh, requires different thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my other favorite question beside the three key takeaways is, and we ask this each week of our guests, tell us something interesting or unique you do outside of work that people may not know about you or would find interesting. Okay. Well, there's a little bit of a risk in sharing this with you. Well, we've talked about risk, so here here goes. (laughs) Well, I'm counting on the fact that this podcast is going to end as soon as I say, and that you're not going to force me to 
to proceed, but I love to sing. So oh, I'm really? a singer. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I love to sing. I just recently joined a new acapella group Good for you. in my neighborhood, and we are going to be performing the Star Spangled Banner at a Northwestern basketball game, which is Great. my alma mater. So I'm Great. really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Good for you. I won't make you sing, but I'm uh, okay, thrilled to hear. That's <laughs> one of the things that's, that's been fun about this question. Probably the top response so far is Brian Ross from Fix Flyer, if you know Brian. Yeah. He does long distance swimming. He, oh, uh-huh. he swims the English Channel. He swum between uh, England and Ireland. He is somewhere down wow. in, in like the in the South Pacific, some island to island swim that it's a part of a team. They swim like for 24 hours and they take, you know, an hour on, an hour, two hours off. There's a team of three. Anyway, it's crazy. That takes the cake. We've not seen that one topped yet. And then uh, <laughs> the last uh, recording we did with Damon Daru from uh, Advisor Peak, now part of Adapar. He does, I forget what it's called exactly, but you climb between crevices. He, he lives on Utah. So, yeah. Oh. But anyway, he, wow. he does that with a team and they basically climb through crevices. None of the above, including singing, will you see me doing. So uh, I think we're all uh, <laughs> safe. So, Trisha, this has been uh, a real pleasure speaking to you as Thank always. You. Love to t- chat with you and enjoyed our conversation very much. Uh, for our audience, uh, if you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and or share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks, Trisha. Thank Look you. Look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.